0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com.
1: We're going to put this microphone on you and you'll introduce me then you'll hand it over to me. You guys don't see the choreographing. Are you ready to roll tape?
2: No, no. Okay. Does that pick up okay? I guess it does. It's a pleasure for me this morning to introduce uh, a man that I've known for a long time, and uh, who uh, is one of those people, to some extent, who needs no introduction. But uh, but Marshall Fritz uh, is uh, one of the most visible members of the libertarian movement. Uh, he has uh, he has quite a fascinating background. Uh, this you know, Marshall being being a former salesman, which he didn't put on this sheet, uh, tells gives me all these wonderful things to say. Uh, he's he's very well organized. Uh, he started out, actually, he says, as a left liberal, which I didn't I didn't know before. Uh, I've only known Marshall since he's been a libertarian. Uh, he heard about uh, these ideas first in 1977 and uh, served as an active volunteer in the Clark Campaign for president in 1980, which is where a great many uh, libertarians got their start. And uh, he's run for office, ran as a congressional candidate in 1982. Uh, and served for uh, at least a year as executive director of the California Libertarian Party back in 1983. During the 84 presidential campaign of Dave Berglund, he was a petition-drive manager, collected 35,000 signatures in 27 days in Pennsylvania, it says here, pretty impressive, uh, and was uh, served as campaign manager for the Steve Gibbett campaign for U.S. Senate in Illinois in 1984. Uh, Following all of that uh, activity in the party, uh, Marshall founded Advocates for Self-Government in 1985 and has developed such things as the world's smallest political quiz, of which he tells me there are over a million copies now in circulation, uh, the Liberty Communicator course, uh, the Seminar One uh, program, and incidentally, I was just in uh, in Alabama uh, last weekend for the Alabama LP convention, and uh, I was amazed to see the degree to which uh, Advocates uh, has been adopted and and is working in Alabama. They seem to have one of the most active groups anywhere in the country. And it's well tied in with the Libertarian Party uh, there. The ELP is actively promoting this as a a recruiting and training device. Uh, He's also uh, produced the video introduction to libertarianism and the Operation Politically Homeless, uh, and uh, more recently, uh, Liberty Teleconferences. This is is the end of of what I'm supposed to formally say. But I just wanted to, to add a personal note that I really, I think what Marshall is doing with Advocates for Self-Government is really important. Uh, uh, We—it's not enough to just have the ideas of liberty. It's—it's it's crucially important that we both learn how to present them effectively to people, and and not, uh, not be excited about having something to offend everyone, but actually learning how to impress people with the with the. Uh, Goodness of libertarian ideas and their rightness and their uh, applicability to solve today's problems, and Marshall believes very strongly in that, and I think is effectively working uh, to do that, and uh, he's got an approach developed from marketing principles that uh, that I think uh, uh, really seems to work. So, with uh, no further ado, from Fresno, California, speaking here today on using your political campaign for outreach, my friend Marshall Fritz.
1: Thank you. Didn't Bob give one great speech last night? Did we enjoy that, or did we enjoy that, huh? And how many of us enjoyed that presentation by Larry Dodge the last few minutes, huh? Wasn't that something? I love to do that because people listen to these tapes, you see, and they, and they missed out on uh, Bob Poole's speech, or they missed out on... Um, on um Larry Dodge, and it just kind of said, next year I'm going to go to the convention, so little uh, little hooks like that. I was going to start with a kind of a Ben Franklin T-chart on the advantages of the benefits, the payoffs of political campaigns, and then some of the negatives, the costs, the drawbacks of political campaigns. Yeah, I drew up a little T-chart. I don't know if, uh, if you're all asleep already. Uh, maybe I'll have to read mine, but I was thinking maybe we could I'd do a change here, and I could ask you all for some of the advantages that we see, the benefits, the payoffs of political campaigning, and, and then maybe some of the expenses, costs, drawbacks, or difficulties that there are there. So and then I'll expand my list, and the next time I give this speech, I'll get up and show how smart I am. You see, I've swiped more ideas. i so careful I got rid of my pen. Uh, so no. Who has a second pen that could volunteer? You can use the Fritz trick of handing a person a felt tip pen and keeping the lid. (laughs) (laughs) You always get your pen back. (laughs) But one of three things in my life I've invented, and that's and that one I borrowed from somebody. We're going to talk about some of the benefits and some of the negatives. Let's start with the benefits. Uh, please speak up real loudly. In fact, even stand up and give your name if you, if, um, and uh, maybe the city you come from and then give a benefit. So uh, who's uh, bold and first? Come on. There you go. Yeah. Dennis
3: Thompson,
1: for You swinging that camera? <laughs> good. All right, he's swinging that camera. All right, good. Get the microphone over here. Speak up. Major benefits. Is you have a lot
3: of fun talking to a lot of people.
1: Well said. All right, congratulations. A lot of fun. That ties in with my first one that I put down. The benefits of campaigning are you get lots of attention. Now raise your hand if you just got too much attention as a kid. <laughs> and you just can't stand anymore. All right. So that's I think one of the benefits, and it ties into that one. What's another benefit there? Yes, Chuck. Speak up. Turn around. And face the microphone.
0: Chuck Olson, candidate for Congress in Palo Alto. Another benefit is that a lot of organizations put together events, they advertise them. All you have to do is show up and you'll have a captive audience to get to your <coughs> position on the
1: issues. Very well said, yes. <clears throat> Efficiency. It helps us spread the word, but it's very efficient. Yes. Betsy Mill. Busy, Betsy. <laughs>
3: Betsy Mill, former. had to set the questions and they were libertarian questions rather than always having the other people ask to
1: set the, the platform Woo-hoo! she got to set the questions okay one more maybe two one more maybe two that's one way to cut off uh feedback isn't it okay oh yes chuck another one good
0: i found in my candidate's forums that when the libertarian point of view is represented Instead of all the debate being standard Democratic and Republican uh, points of view, like it's all for the public good, all the candidates, including the Democrats and Republicans, start to address the issues from the libertarian perspective. They'll say, well, I'm very libertarian on this issue, or I'm afraid I'm not libertarian <laughs> on this issue because the government does have a role. But the term, it, it permeates the entire debate after you've been there for a few minutes.
1: Yep. They get tired of arguing uh, about the uh, the trivial after a while, I guess, and they uh, they enjoy speaking to uh, to the issues. And it is fun to watch them claim to be libertarian on a, on an issue. It it, it sort of uh, validates the the entire concept. They aren't going to stand up there and say, oh, I'm kind of an astrologer on this issue and that," but not on. So I don't mean to offend anyone's religion particularly, but uh, <laughs> people ask me, "What's my sign?" I don't know. So. so um, I think another one that we, we didn't mention, but I'd like to add, it creates volunteer time. Entrepreneurs create jobs, don't they? People have a place to work. I think candidates create volunteer time. Volunteers are kind of sitting around watching Laverne and Shirley or, or reading or something. I don't know what they're doing you know, when they're not working on libertarianism. I've never tried it. But <laughs> they're... They're doing something, and then along comes the campaign, and there's that sort of, that blood starts throbbing and pulsing, and, and you know, you sort of arise to the, uh, to the occasion. So I think it actually creates uh, um, volunteer time. And, of course, it spreads the words. And something that we haven't mentioned, in fact, it's really what we're going to be focusing on in this presentation a bit, is it can be used to create or to develop or to locate new libertarians, and you knew if you were coming to a presentation by the Advocates for Self-Government, you knew somehow Marshall Fritz was going to sneak in this insidious concept <laughs> right, of finding more people and getting them to join us. This ruining our small pond man, sp- pondmanship right, that we've got going for us now. So. That's right. The ruination of the movement as we knew it.
3: <laughs>
1: by expanding it. Now what are some of the expenses, the costs, the drawbacks that we see in the political campaigning? Do oh, yet, yeah, Chuck Olson. It takes time. Takes time, okay. Fine. What's another one? Well, that exhausts our <laughs> Boy, that's just so much fun. <laughs> you can do it takes money, okay?
3: It's hard to measure any Visible
1: benefits. Bingo. Will you please stand up and say that to, 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 to TV land out there? Come on.
3: It's hard to measure any visible benefits. Votes are not a very good way of measuring how you've done.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Come back to that, and back to that, and back to that. In the back, someone was scratching, oh, waving, yes. Richard Martin, swing the camera. Richard Martin,
0: congressional candidate, North it can lead to a uh, sense of depression uh, after the campaign is over, if uh, unrealistic hopes are built.
1: That's right. It, leads, it can lead to a sense of depression, or what we could call post-campaign blues, or some might call burnout. Postpartisan, <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. But the
1: downside of being the center of attention all that all so long is then uh, now they're all looking at something else, right? And not at you. Oh. I like initiative. I had. Hooray for Chuck! Prevent <laughs> Speaking tip to you, toastmasters, or or soon to be toastmasters, or someday to be toastmasters: If a siren goes by, what should you do? Stop Stop and and point at the siren. If a bird flies in the room, what should you do? Talk about the bird, because that's what they're all doing anyway. (laughs) You want to be the leader, so you find out where the crowd's headed, and you run out in front of them,
3: and
1: ah! Jerry Brown invitation. (laughs) and sometimes there's waste. Sometimes one of the drawbacks of a campaign is that there seems to be, there are occasions where we seem to be able to waste our time. But I believe that Karen put her finger on it so well, and it ties into what we call this post-partisan blues, or the burnout that you hear about. And that is, in fact, I like to say, what does burnout come from? And I believe that burnout never comes from exhaustion well I don't want to overwork the volunteers so I'm not going to ask them to come out next Saturday I don't want to overwork our volunteers here is missing the point completely burnout does not come from exhaustion it comes from two things A sense of futility and a sense of not being appreciated. It's it's that sensation that you're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, boat's gone down, you're by yourself, you're paddling, it's midnight, and you're in the fog. You just don't have a sense of making any progress. (laughs) There's a futility there. What we need is some way to, to pound a stake in the ground. So if we are able to move, we can measure the distance. <laughs> you know, I did that. Right? Whether well, it's a foot or 12 inches, however far. I did that. And you can feel good about it. And a sense of appreciation that, that people... Uh, recognize and feel good about it. And, And part of what we're going to talk about here today, campaigning for outreach, is how to use your campaign to maximize those benefits that we talked about and minimize those costs. The theme of today's presentation is that you can use your political campaign, the one you're involved in this year, the one you'll be involved in next year or two years from now, or the one that you're working on someone else's campaign. You can talk with your campaign manager to your candidate and say, let's get to be part of the the Liberty Three-Step. The Liberty Three-Step? Yeah, the Liberty Three-Step. You shoot them, I skin them, and you all get to eat them, to dine on them. What do I mean? Use the campaign to have a single measurable objective. Its purpose is to get the names and addresses of people who are interested, curious about our ideas. Have a measurable goal. I'm going to get 831 names. Why'd you pick that number? My mother was born on August the 31st. I don't know what your reason was for picking 831 or 902. Carol Ann Rand in 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 uh, Atlanta, in Georgia, running for the uh, A governor has picked the number 2,000 names and they're going to know in Georgia if that campaign was a success on Monday night, the day before the election, because they're going to know if they got 1,921 names, I suspect they'll call that campaign a major success or 2,012 names, I think they'll call it a major success or 3,000 names, they'll call it a major success. Or seven hundred and twelve names, they'll call it a partial success and a valuable learning experience.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and we can do two thousand next year, or we can set our goals at seven hundred and fifty, or something you know, I don't know what will come from it. But they'll have pounded the stake in the ground and they developed a measuring stick where they can see how far they can get. A couple of geez, that might be six years ago, and I won't mention his name because he was very proud of his campaign plan. It was all typed up. It was February, and, did, 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 and it's full page, and there it ended on November the sixth, or seventh, or eighth, with the with the election night party. And I remember turning it over and seeing nothing on the other side. There was a complete campaign plan, and it was one well, typed and everything, and thorough. It just it really seemed great at one level. What would happen if a golfer? came up, studied the lay, addressed the ball, pulled his hands back, did all of his thinking up until he hit the ball, and paid no attention to the rest of his swing. What if all of his focus was on hitting the ball? I don't even play golf, but I know the answer to that one. You all know the answer to that one? What's gonna happen, Brian? It's
0: not going to go uh, very far down the fairway. (laughs) It's not gonna go
1: very far down a fairway. It'll go quite far in the rough, (laughs) or something. But it isn't gonna work. Because there was no sense of follow-through. Now, what if you had a campaign that was, say, uh, 15, 18 months long? Why? There's the seven or eight months between now and November, phase one. Then there's November through the following June, phase two. And then phase three is from, from, say, May through July of next year, a little overlap with phase phase two. And what if the first part of my campaign is to get those names, those 831, those, I don't know, pick your number, right? Pound your stake in the ground. Set your target. November the 5th, you know if you've made that. Your second wave has gotten involved earlier because their plan is to run Seminar 1s through January, February, March, April, and May. That's the Seminar 1 season, if you will. That's when people come into the mood. They come into... The, uh, the attitude where they can reflect on political thought. They can't reflect on political thought during the heat of the campaign. we got to get it done by November the 5th or it's all over. How are you going to? Real quick. We're not reflecting on political thought. We're in orange card action sort of mode. We're not in reflection mode. But a person needs to, many of us need to evaluate these ideas as we approach the threshold of of libertarianism. There needs to be some reflection and evaluation before we can make it across and become libertarians. That's the the spring season from January through June. Can you get them to sit down and reflect on libertarianism in in July and August? Uh, Do we try to run seminar ones in the summer? Resentfully, yes. I set up a training program each year because a whole lot of people get excited about the seminar one in the spring, but they don't quite get their round to it lined up. And then come May, they're all enthused and ready. And I say, okay, we'll have one course and I run one course for the summer. And I say, you know, do it in the morning and and run it for seven weeks and tell people, you know, pick any four out of seven weeks to attend. So we have little stop gaps that people can do their seminar ones in the summer, but it's not ideal at all. So, phase one is to get the names, that's what you use the campaign for. And then you sort of say, here, advocates for self-government, take all these names for me, would you please, and, and, and get recruit those people, develop those people into libertarians. Now, we're not a real large movement, so at the same time you should be <laughs> coming over here, hey, thank you, <laughs> I appreciate all those names, you guys are doing great work out there, right? Uh, here I am with the uh, advocates for self-government, and I'm... And in the spring semester, you're you're working like mad and your friends and leading your seminar ones. We'll talk a little bit about the statistics and the specifics of that in a second. But the seminar everyone here know what a seminar one is? Am I just talking? <sighs> Real quickly then. It's one libertarian. In fact, I just want to announce right now, I'm gonna to have to change this pretty soon. Well, let me finish. One libertarian sitting down for a dessert typically, sometimes breakfast or lunch with six or seven non-libertarians. The non-libertarians read Libertarianism in One Lesson by David Berglund, three chapters a week, and they put exclamation points and question marks in the margin when they agree and disagree with things. Now, the hard part is, the libertarian's job is to keep his or her mouth shut. We call it the soft Socratic method. Jim Lorenz called it the bloody tongue method. (laughs) 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 But it's not the libertarian's job to use that conventional approach we use, if I can just shake your lapels hard enough, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you're going to understand this. <laughs> See, that's, right. <laughs> no, that's not the approach we're using. They learn, uh, they read about libertarianism out of the book, and then they discuss it amongst themselves. And it's interesting, out of any group of five or six people, there's always one or two or three that are that already agree with the libertarian position. And they make very effective, now that they've read you know, libertarianism, libertarian stuff, and they got their logic and detail, which they kind of maybe didn't have quite before. Now they become very effective spokesmen for libertarianism. And then the discussion, you know, you talk about two things maybe during the night. Might start on uh, compulsory education, switch over to drug laws. And they're switching around as who's talking about what. Well, I mean, the whole thing's just fun. You get out of there, do that for five weeks. The fifth week, you say, now it's the time for the final, about an hour into the meeting. Please take a piece of paper, a piece of paper there, and for two minutes, would you write a definition? Or you have to, write a definition of libertarianism. They all scribble. Now, if you agree with the principles that are embodied in your definition, please sign your name on your piece of paper, 85%. Then you say, congratulations on having become a libertarian. And I can guarantee what they're going to say. Is that all there is? Don't I have to join something or change my registration or vote or send money? And you say, yes. See, successful Seminar One leaders have gone through a training program with the Advocates for (laughs) (laughs) Self-Government. They have studied their... 100 page manual chock full of answers to all of the tough questions on how to lead a group, not about libertarianism. Other people write that stuff. I don't need to. We talk about how. I'll take one for each row. And, uh, <coughs> that's the, and the libertarian says, those are all strategies or tactics. Some libertarians do them, some don't. I do them or I don't, whatever. But that's not the essence of being a libertarian. The essence of being a libertarian is to know what it is and to agree with it. That's the essence of it. Congratulations on having become a libertarian. it? Well, right. all right. Wait till I tell Mildred. <laughs> All right? I became a mere libertarian tonight. You what? <laughs> but they've crossed the threshold. See, that's the advocate's job is to get people to approach and evaluate libertarianism and when ready to embrace those ideas. So step one, y'all get names. And and campaigning isn't the only way to get names. But it can be, we believe, a very effective way for you to get names. A very efficient way for you to get names. To go beyond this this sort of spread the word mentality that we've had so long. that Karen, Karen points out, it doesn't have, uh, you, how do you measure it? You know, as if libertarianism is some sort of mayo and we're putting on the rye bread of America. We're going to spread the word, right? So, part one, or phase one, use the campaign to get the names. Phase two, hand all the names over to the... Advocates catch them, lead the seminar once, and then you have Welcome Night. And Welcome Night is where you give these names, if you will, back to the libertarian movement, or to give it to the libertarian movement as a whole. Now that they have embraced libertarianism, they have the question: What do I do with it? Something, depending upon on just the you know the kind of people you've found and how kind of people that become libertarian, anywhere from 10, 20, or even 30 percent want to become active. It's not just a philosophy for them, but they say, what do I do? And at Welcome Night, what you do is you have all the new libertarians, could be 5, 10, 15, or 20. They come, and you pick out five existing libertarians. So you want Dick Ryder there, and you want Dennis there, and you want Tom there, and you want Chuck there, you want Nita there. And you ask each one of the existing libertarians, would you please make a uh, presentation on one of your favorite libertarian organizations? Pick one of your favorite. Just mention the name. What, uh, Dennis, I'm looking at you. A. <laughs> <huh? laughs> <laughs> Wake. Anyway, SIL. What? SIL. Uh, Society for Individual Liberty. So he makes about a three-minute presentation on what SIL is all about, or now that they've renamed it the... Um, International. I mean, I.S.I.L. Uh, <laughs> International <laughs> Society for Individual Liberty, right? And Dick, you'd make a presentation maybe on... On Reason Foundation. Neither you'd on Norm, okay. well, Peter, you'd make a presentation
3: maybe
1: on. Normal. Normal, okay. Peter, you'd make a presentation maybe on. Fee. Fee. And Tom, you'd make a presentation maybe on. Advocates, of
3: course.
1: The what? Advocates. Advocates, great. How
3: about the Libertarian
1: Party? Dan Chuck would make a presentation on the Libertarian Party. See, the Advocates is not the stalking horse, the Libertarian Party. It's not our job to recruit members to the Libertarian Party. We're a 501c3 tax exempt educational foundation. Mm-hmm. And we are squeaky clean. And we get people to embrace libertarianism. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's very good. Then, at welcome night, Reason, Cato, Fee, whomever. Nor- can recruit, does, people. There's a display of literature. You all bring what you want. And now, if the party people are active in Advocates, what do you think one of the uh, organizations that's mentioned is? The LP. The LP. And if party people aren't active in the Advocates, what's one of the organizations that's left out at Welcome Night? LP. Now, if you want the LP to grow, what do you gotta do? Pay Marshall <laughs> Pay Marshall <off. laughs> <laughs> That's from a man who bought twenty-five thousand world's smallest political quizzes and now is has got a need to give them away. <laughs> 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 right? Supply clear eats its own, to, you know. Honey, how long are you gonna keep those in the closet? Okay. You have the overview. Let's do some touches on it. There's some uh, Specifics here Number one you beat the futility burnout kind of equation because you have a measurable goal Number two you also avoid futility because you're measuring not only on a measurable goal But it's one that's essentially under your control Vote total is measurable But when you're out in the Pacific Ocean You know, it's measurable that you're floating up and down with the flotsam and the jetsam, but you're not in control of it. We seem to have relatively little control of our vote totals in most races. The Florida experience, 88, there was a direct, excuse me, directly inverse proportion to the number of Libertarians in a county and the vote percentage. The highest percentage were gained in those counties where there is no known Libertarian. <laughs> the lowest percentage of Libertarian vote totals were in those counties where they had the most established and active Libertarian chapters.
3: Well, <laughs>
1: and, it's, it's, no, and it's not a party of, uh, you know, nuts and flakes. Get them to move out of the state. Can't you see this new uh, way of uh, of winning for libertarianism? All right, let's all leave someplace. (laughs) If we could all leave the same place, you know, that that would become libertarian. Well, yeah. Uh, There's my own experience in 1982 as a candidate. I ran as a uh, congressional candidate in one of the most highly gerrymandered districts in California and probably in the country. It looks like a grotesque French telephone. It starts in Fresno, in fact, it actually starts in Sanger, where the candidate who was intended to win, and did, uh, lives. Strings into Fresno, picks up the Democratic parts of Fresno, wraps around the north part, you know, leaves this big gap here, and then spins over the mountains to the Nevada border, goes north 100 miles, comes back over the mountains, kind of where Tom is, back over the mountains, goes into Stanislaus County, and picks up the, uh, the Democratic portions of Stockton. I mean, that's about 150 miles away. So anybody who... And then it gives a 60-40 or 60-30 uh, uh, vote split between the Democrats and the Republicans. So it's wired on vote split in registration, and then it's double-wired because by stretching into two media markets, Fresno and Stockton, you make it very expensive for a contender because he's got to buy advertising, the TV advertising, and uh, uh, et cetera, in both markets. So it's just incredible. It's a wire you know, for a uh, for Democrat. So, and the story even of how... Uh, it got interesting when Phil Burton got mad at one guy, and he designed this district for another guy to stick it to the first guy. Is you know it came out of a vendetta. Now what happened? Well, Marshall Fritz was a very active candidate in 1982 in Fresno, not in Stockton. Very, very, very active. So active, I decided that I want to do this full time, and I left my computer business at the end of the, the computer business at the end of the year and became a full-time libertarian, and have been for seven years. But the interesting thing is, is that the vote percentage was about the same. It was not low. It was not higher in Stockton, where they hadn't seen me. All right, I did not have a complete repeat of the Florida experience. <laughs>
3: That's why you're standing before us today? That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there was a statistically insignificant improvement in Fresno over Stockton. For all the talk shows, for all the brochures, for all, 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 all. Now, I promised, and I think that uh, now is a good time to share with you uh, something that, it, in a sense, is, is a little bit of an aside, but it hammers home this point that is so important called the Scalini factor. And I've only spoken publicly on the Scalini factor once before. There may be nobody or just a few here. Is anybody here uh, familiar with the Scalini factor? May I see a show of hands? All right, an entire one. Well, that's good, though. He's the gubernatorial candidate, so we're, we're getting to the right kind of people. Bruno Scolini is a marble setter. He lives in uh, Torrance uh, in Southern California. And uh, I visited him and his wife, um, Lucille, in, uh, I guess, 1983. or me. No, it wasn't. Maybe, anyway, doesn't mean it doesn't 83, 84. 83. And I stayed overnight at their house. Now, Bruno Scolini... As you might guess from his occupation and from his name, has kind of a old-world concrete um, way of uh, things. Bruno is not the, um, you know, a reader intellectual type kind of a guy. And we got in a little discussion, um, and uh, and it turned out actually his wife had voted libertarian. And he said to me, he said, "Hey, Marshall, is that guy uh, who ran? Uh, it was on television." Uh, a couple of years ago for running for president. I said, Ed Clark? He said, yeah, that's him. He says, I used to watch those uh, ads. And uh, asked me a question, asked me a question. Do you know, do you know him? He said, I said, yeah, I've stayed in his house. I know him fairly well. He asked me a question. Did he think he had any chance of winning? I said, no, <laughs> he was very realistic. He knew there was zero chance, I mean, there was no chance. He says, that's good. He says, I, uh, I liked everything he said. And I would have voted for him, except I couldn't tell if he thought he might win or not. And if he thought he could win, he was a nut. And I'm not going to vote for a nut. (laughs) (laughs) I came out of my chair and did a pirouette. I was so excited because Bruno gave me the little missing link in in a question I'd been trying to figure out, since I'd run in an 82, and I had developed some, some fairly creative, um, good uh, um, answers to the question, uh, well, yes, uh, Mr. Fritz, but uh, but do you think you have any chance of winning? I right. had developed some answers to that. But Bruno gave me the, the, uh, the perspective to know what the answer should have been. My answer should have been, No, I've answered his question. Now, do you think he's going to have a follow-up question, or am I finished speaking for the rest of my life to this this reporter?
3: Is he going to have a follow-up?
1: He's going to have a follow-up question. Well, then why are you running, right? Let's think about it from the reporter's standpoint will exaggerate here and polarize. He's either a young starry-eyed idealistic reporter who's going to, you know, help bring information to people or he's a or she's an old cynical uh, seen all these uh, politicians lie, right? Either way, I don't care. And that politician is listening to you and has been impressed for 45 minutes. Cuz Bruce you've given him honest answers. Answers that obviously are going to keep you from, from winning of having any chance. But they've not only been honest, and, and you seem to be sincere, but you seem to be very well-intentioned. You're not, you're not out to hurt people. You want people to be better off. So, and, and, and not only that, you seem to have some logic, and you've thought these things through, uh, you know, logic that, I've, that the reporter's never even seen before. And you have examples all the time that the reporter's never even heard of. Well, of course we can have. We can privatize these things to still have standardization. Why, uh, we used to have 56 time zones in America. Baltimore, you know, for instance, was two and a half minutes behind uh, New York. Well, it's a matter of civic pride. We're not going to be in the same time zone as those New Yorkers, are we? Until it was privatized. Time was privatized. Who can tell us the year? 1883. Time was privatized. Now we have four time zones. The federal government didn't come around to approving of that until 1914. Did you ever hear the term, railroad time? Did you ever hear that term? Yeah, what's it mean? That's how time got privatized. Railroads couldn't put up with stupid government, you know, insane 56 time zones. So time was privatized. So you keep coming up with these kinds of things that just intrigue the reporter. You're looking well-intentioned, honest, intelligent, knowledgeable, logical, and the idealistic one has got, there's her eyes this big, and the cynical one is thinking, there's got to be a rat in here somewhere.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just haven't done the right probing to find what's wrong with this person. Finally, the question. Well, tell me, sir, do you, do you think you have any possibility of winning? Well, if the message was just out, or if, you know, blah, 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 whatever your little... You know, there's no reason why I can't, whatever you're a little disingenuous, dissembling. You know, you've been candid and honest and leveling with the guy. You've been a straight shooter for 45 minutes and how do you finish your interview? How you been trained by, by libertarian leaders to finish your interview? Huh?
3: Wow. Waffling.
1: Waffling. <laughs> a little deceit maybe. You're walking through the valley of death, and if you cut your hair and hobble yourself with a lie, you trip right at the end. And he says to himself, guy almost had me, right? But he's just another con, just another, he's willing to lie, or he's nuts. And if he's a nut, I don't care. I can't learn from him. He might be right. You know, some nut might know that two plus two equals four, but you don't want to learn arithmetic from a nut. The Scalini factor is that they are testing you to see if you are honest and sane. And the only honest and sane answer to the question is, well, tell us, uh, uh, sir, do you think that you have any chance of, uh, of winning? One chance out of 3,500. 3, Thank you. <laughs>
3: 28 million divided by eight thousand. Libertarian. As good as my chances in the lottery. <laughs> as good as the chance the Republican has that I ran against in the Democratic Congressional District.
1: They all fail. All those answers are cute. <laughs> Is cuteness what the guy needs? Is he trying to find out if you can be cute at that moment? No. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. He's not, that's not his question. That's not what he's really seeking. You come up to a a, a, person, a 12-year-old kid. He's on a... Uh, no, let's make it a little bit different. A 50-year-old man. He's on a... Uh, me, 44-year-old man. He's on a um, <laughs> pogo stick, okay? And he's on his pogo stick. And you go up and say, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to the moon. What do you think your chances are? One in eight million. One in twenty million—a slim to none, very slim. Any of those answers, you think this guy doesn't understand something? <laughs> His odds are not thirty-six million to eight thousand. His odds are thirty-six million to zero. And if you if you come off of that, just a little. He knows you're, you're, you're trying to con him. You're not being. See, here's what happened. In the 70s, when the libertarians first got politically active, they learned lessons from the people who were already politically active, the Democrats and Republicans. And what was one of the cardinal rules? Never admit you're going to lose. Now, am I saying a Democrat or Republican should ever admit that he's going to lose? Am I saying that? Am I teaching Republicans how to run for office?
3: (laughs) Please don't. Thank you.
1: Yes, Dick Ryder, San Diego, California, in the blue trunks.
0: What about the answer, not this time?
1: That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I don't know if that's as better than no, but it might be that might be. Yes, sir, Chuck.
0: Suffers, I know you lose a lot of credibility when they label you perennial candidate. I've been labeled that quite justly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it, it, it shows that, oh, this guy's gonna run 12 times or something, and so it might have a weakness there.
1: Yep, that's a possibility. The main thing you need to do is to get them to ask you, well, then why are you running? Well, they're going to kind of do that anyway. But you need to have a coherent answer to the question, "Why are, then why are you running? <coughs> and you say, well, my campaign objective, this is phase one of sort of a three-stage campaign. My campaign objective, in fact, let me play with some numbers here, that are one-tenth of Carol Ann. Well, let me give you what Carol Ann would say. Caroline Rand would say something like this, of course she wouldn't have notes in front of her the way I have, but she'd say, well, our campaign is designed to get the names and addresses of 2,000 Georgians, people in Georgia, Georgia, I guess they call them Georgians, 2,000 people here in Georgia who are curious about our ideas. We expect to be able to invite 1,500 of them to attend a seminar and uh, 400 of those to, to come and actually evaluate the libertarian ideas next spring. Out of those 400 that evaluate our ideas, well over 300 will become libertarians. Probably 20% of those, maybe 25% will actually get active, and then the process repeats itself the next year, on a larger, or two years later, on a larger scale. And it's our, we can't predict at this stage when we're going to see electoral victory any more than certain East Germans or Romanians could predict when they were going to see uh, some progress. these things are very hard to predict. But we know we're not gonna win if we stay the same size. And we know we are going to win when enough people figure these ideas out and they make sense. Now, do you sound rational? Huh? Plus, you don't say, you let them figure it out themselves. You don't say that this thing starts to look like it has some exponential growth capacity. Looks like Amway growing, growing, growing kind of a thing. You don't say that. Let the reporter figure it out for herself, or himself. Because he's like, wait a second, if this guy finds 300 new libertarians, this gal, this gal finds 300 new libertarians, 20% of them get active, That uh, 20% times 300 is 60, you know, she's got she's 60 of those get active. Heck, I don't even care, but if just a few of those start doing this, uh, this thing's gonna grow. And then all the time you put out your campaign releases and that sort of thing, press releases, and the the reporters are calling you and saying, how many names do you have so far? You're moving me that way? Why am I moving? To make room for Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: Good
1: to to say, I've been... uh, (laughs) (laughs) By <laughs> and while it's and while it's uh it's falling we all got to look at it don't we huh yeah. when it's just mm-hmm. yeah? okay <laughs> all right we're gonna have somebody be my tape monitor mm-hmm. boss Chuck we have a tape monitor. good
0: <laughs> guaranteed
1: <laughs> <sighs> by the way the uh, bill to do a uh, 10% rollback on the law of gravity as a temporary supplement to the airlines has gone down in committee, so uh. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why the government doesn't.
0: 0.
1: No, that actually was passed. Um, uh, yeah, Brian points out the uh, state legislature in Indiana, oh this was back before the turn of the century, uh, declared that in Indiana pi is
3: 3.0. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Luckily most engineers didn't, uh, uh, they, excuse me, they were into uh, pi, uh, pi nullification anyway, yeah, pi nullification act of 19. 19- <laughs> <laughs> Another one who went down to defeat is true. I mean, you don't have to make this stuff up. but uh, <laughs> you know, We're talking about politicians here. <laughs> is, uh, uh, Indiana got very close to passing a law with, to, to have an official state dirt. <laughs> but you think about it. Why should the state have a state butterfly or a state legume or a state, you know some of the other things that a states have? Why should you have a state flower? If you have a state flower, why shouldn't you have a state dirt? <laughs> but, that's right. Where do they think flowers come from, anyway? <laughs> so, point three, design your campaign to, com- to complete in June of 1991. Where phase one, as we said, is to recruit names. Phase two, to get people to evaluate and hence embrace libertarianism. And then phase three, to take place in May, June, and July, is to invite them into the movement. Are people willing to go to parties, you know, like potluck suppers and that kind of a thing in May, June, and July? Are those kind of fun? Is that a good way to get these people to, to find out if other libertarians are fun to be with and interesting people? Yeah. And that's what you do. The the uh, uh, Welcome Night is, is is designed around a potluck supper format. And each of the new libertarians, when the program starts after the, the uh Vittles, and you get into the program, each of the new libertarians uh, gets to read their definition of libertarianism. And they get a round of applause from all of the existing and, and their other new libertarians. Hey, that's all right, I never thought of it that way. That's good goes around the room that way. And then the, the uh, Dicks and Nitas and, and uh, Denniss et cetera, get up and give their presentations. We're going to take some questions right now, and then uh, with the remaining time, we'll talk a little bit about Operation Politically Homeless, and then I want to close with an um, uh, invitation that will be limited to seven people nationally to participate in a pilot program. Uh, We did a pre-pilot last year, and it worked very, very well. David Berglund was so excited, he said, this may be the greatest innovation yet for the Libertarian Party, um, but a way to train and coach our candidates uh, effectively, which we've never had before. So we'll talk about that just as we're, we're wrapping up. But let's, uh, let's take a few questions. Let's get, yeah. Marshall. Uh, uh, Tom Tryon, a, uh, um, a board of supervi- uh, supervisor of the uh, county, which county? Calaveras. Calaveras County. And why uh, I won't use my toad-licking joke tonight,
0: <laughs>
2: today, this morning. I, I'm interested if you did any analysis as to why uh, when you focused your campaign in Fresno, you didn't statistically do any better in Fresno than in Stockton where your name was basically just on the ballot. Right. Uh, and do you have a, have you why, why
1: was it better in... in um, why was it not statistically better? It was 2.1% in Fresno and one9 in Stockton. And I don't think that's a big, big difference. We put out 8,000 brochures. It was actually uh, a... Uh, um, before the World's Smallest Political Quiz, but very similar. It was a very nice professional brochure. You look at it, you'd say it was a very mm-hmm. good brochure. Did a bunch of talk shows and uh, spoke at service clubs, high schools, that kind of a thing. I think it's because um, it's why we don't put fans um, along the <laughs> mountains on, uh, uh, in Los Angeles to blow the smog out to uh, uh, Del Harbor, <laughs> out to the Valley, is that is the fans can't be big enough. The weather is so large that you don't make any sort of a dent with the size of campaign that we can mount. You can't, you know, it's that flea scurrying up an elephant's backside with uh, um, illicit intentions uh, on his or his mind, right? It just we're so diminutive. I tell Paul, um, uh, reporters we're, we're so small. We're looking forward to being teensy weensy.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and they laugh and relax, and hey, that's really, maybe I can help you. you know, I mean, they they have a different kind of an attitude. So um, we're too small to have that kind of an effect now in that in that kind of a race. Yes, Dennis.
2: Well, it's interesting because I ran for Congress in '86 and I got an '88. And in 88, we walked three precincts, and we handed out a one-sheet, hard-to-read brochure. And in one of those, we got a 50% increase in votes, and the other two, we got a 300% increase in votes. And so I think walking or doing something different can make a significant difference. And you know the Scalini factor may be very important, but I think the Romanian factor is even more important. We can get significant changes at various times. And I think that you know, it's important to realize that those changes can come about.
1: Nothing I have said so far, from what I can tell, uh, disagrees with anything that, uh, that Dennis Thompson just said. Um, I think that you can lift the vote totals in some precincts. And in fact, I've been um, thought for some years it would be appropriate to have 10 candidates who would run every two years. And they would, every two years, uh, you know, agree to walk three or four or five precincts that were paired to three or four or five other precincts similar demographics. And if you did that in ten places, and everything in the party could have that as a data point for where were we making much progress. Because you can't get much better, even with all the TV and a whole lot of other things, you can't get a whole lot better than the face-to-face handshake, you know, I met everybody in that precinct kind of a thing. And you should be able to, I would think, lift your vote percentage in those three precincts from, um, you know, with the, kind of, with the kind of capacity that we can muster at this stage, how many of us are there and how many Saturdays are there and how many Saturdays are we willing to go out and walk the precincts, how many precincts can we, we, uh, we walk in each uh, congressional district? And I would say numbers like three or four or five are, are sort of realistic. How many precincts are there in a congressional district in California? Quite a number. Quite a number, right? It's hundreds. So if you can walk three districts out of 300, have you affected the overall vote total? No. no. I'll tell you the Jerry Snyder story. Jerry worked full time for a year on his campaign, and he lifted the vote total up immensely. He got, you know, say, I don't know, 10 15%. I mean, he walked and he walked. He lost his home, he lost his wife. Almost lost his health and his mind. He didn't quite, but he put huge amounts of effort into that, and he got this increased vote total. I asked him how many new libertarians are there. Well, he doesn't know of any for his four thousand votes that he got in a relatively smaller. It wasn't a congressional district. Well, what what new organizational things are happening? I couldn't name any. See, it was back to this spread the word kind of thing. We're trying to crack a walnut. Do you, do you crack a walnut by... Can a child crack a walnut with, with one hand like this? Now, if a child squeezed a walnut as hard as it could for an hour, would they have generated enough energy to have cracked the walnut if all that energy could be applied in a half a second? Yeah. Yes. But because they've applied the energy so slowly over such a long period of time, did it have any effect on the walnut? None. Right. you all squeezing walnuts. And I'm saying, if you learn to put two of them in your hand at one time, you can break them. You need a different tool, a different approach to open walnuts proposal for San Diego County, the two-walnut the two walnut method. Instead of just out there squeezing or holding walnuts and not being able to measure your results by the end of the year, how about if on September the 30th, which is a Sunday, you had 10 Operation Politically Homeless kits set up around this county, and then on Monday you had 10 more, this time at every uh, college in the county. So 10 and 10. Los Angeles, I would urge you to do 20 and 20. And now, if things are slow on the weekend, the newspaper sends out the weekend crew and they do a story on, on what you're doing. But if things didn't get done on the weekend, then I've got a chance for the, for the uh, weekday crew to go out there and do a story. You've got the thing designed so that you've got your press releases all ready, and, you, and this thing is intriguing to the press. Because what happens is the people 20, 25, 30, and sometimes 40% end up uh, way up here. And so do a significant percentage of the press. 30, 40%. We'll find out that the reason they've been so cynical is that they've been, you know, they've had the, the libertarian notions themselves, part of it. And you will get, did you see, do you have the uh, piece there from the Milwaukee Le- Weekly, may I? Uh, I couldn't get away with, with writing a document called Jackasses and Elephant Dung
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and publishing it under my name, because that's a little uh, strident. But some reporter named uh, Jackie Cashian or some headline writer thought it up. Look at the piece of art there. Study that piece of art for a few seconds. What do you see? Well, in the background, the American flag. Then you see this uh, heavyset elephant and this uh, kind of a dim-witted donkey. Both of them are pointing at each other. They say boat. Um, they've got a few bandages. They don't look t- too spiffy or attractive. They're sitting in an edsel that has no wheels. It's in a junkyard. There's boneyards around the bottom. It's got flags on it. But uh, it's clearly uh, broken down and hardly working. And they've got big sacks of money. that artist understand our point? (laughs) Is that artist communicating it in a way where he's not using the L word, is he? But are a lot of people subliminally picking something up there? Huh? Many think that our two-party system holds no political home for them. Now into this breach has rushed a nonprofit group that sets up informational booths for what it calls the politically homeless. And if you take the operation politically homeless, the sign of a kind of a campaign in a can, just add water, energy, and stir, and get out there on Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays. The beauty of it is it's so much fun, and it's so well documented. Please take one for each row. But what you have there is a complete training manual on how to do this. It's even fun if everybody gets the this t-shirt is not self-explanatory t-shirts. It's the quiz t-shirt, of course, which has the diamond on the front. Looks like fun, three or four of these people around a booth. The thing is so much fun, what we're getting from the hundred installations that it's had so far, The feedback we're getting over and over and over again in letters from um, um, people that have tried Operation Politically Homeless is it's easy to recruit volunteers to do it because it's fun. That volunteers who didn't really want to go out to the old-style fair booth where you find one socialist and argue with them for three hours (laughs) think it's really fun to have a process whereby they can get Uh, people to give their names and addresses. And we have booths that are getting upwards of 10 an hour. That is 10 times the productivity of the old fair booths. Our old style of fair boothing used to get on an average 10 names a day when it occurred to the booth people to get names and not just argue. And now we get anywhere from 50 names a day on up. Because you know that's what your purpose is and you've got the tools to do it easily. You all familiar with the Harris five jar technique? You are? Couldn't You're make not. It work, Pardon? Couldn't
0: make it work.
1: Well, then you, then you were doing something, then you weren't following the instructions. Then I didn't write the instructions clearly enough. <laughs> there you go. Then I didn't write the instructions clearly enough, and I'd like to hear about it, and we'll get that you know, little sign up there that says, Does the government do a good job? You got four jars out there on the table, and they're labeled most, some, seldom, and rarely. (laughs) And when people come by, you say, could you participate in our one-question quiz today, sir? In your opinion, does the government do a good job? Most of the time, some of the time, seldom or rarely. I was doing it one time, the very first time with Harris. And uh, and this gal said, I never thought of that, Herman. (laughs) plunked her dime down in some. Now, when they plunked their dime, by the way, a guy in Denver thought up the idea, because we were giving people, we had this little box of beans, and they pick out a bean and put it in A guy in Denver says, you know, why don't you have them put money in it?
3: <laughs>
1: so now we suggest you get this box of pennies, not new pennies. People love to pick up a new penny, right, huh? Grandma will give you a new penny. So you don't want to use new pennies. You use old pennies. Do you have a little box of pennies? And you, and you hold it out and you say, you could use your coin or ours, and you and of course people look at all of these old pennies and they put in their own in their own pocket, right? The guy get generated 45 bucks a day for the time he was running the booth.
3: <laughs>
1: and this lady puts a quarter in most of the time, uh, some of the time. And when I put it in most or some, you say, Thank you for voting. When you're going fishing, what do you need? Water.
3: <laughs>
1: More than anything else, you need water. You don't need fish, you don't need bait, but you've got to have water.
3: <laughs>
1: the Beyond War movement has a statement, you know. Minds are like pistachio nuts; reach for the open ones first. (laughs) (laughs) Do you really want to put your time in with somebody who puts their quarter into most of the time or some of the time? No. You need water. There's someone there. Thank you for voting, Uh, sir. (laughs) Would you like to? (laughs) Right? Or they put it in seldom or rarely. Maybe interested. Hi. Would you like a little information? About the libertarian solutions to some of the tough social problems. Would you like to find out who agrees with you really in the world of politics? Liberals or conservatives, centrists or somebody else? And to take them over to the ten-question quiz and put their dot up there. Any questions on the Harris Five Jar technique? Where's the fifth jar? Oh, thought you'd never ask.
2: <laughs> I always ask.
1: About one out of 50 people says, you don't have uh, the right, you don't have the right jar. Then you reach under the table, and you pull pull out the fifth jar, and you hold it up, and you say, is this what you're looking for? And what does it say? Never. Never. (laughs) We have never had anyone ask for the always jar. (laughs) He reaches in his other side of his pocket, pulls out his billfold and plops down a little help there for the kids, right? And what do you say? Could you come over here and take care of the booth for a couple minutes? I gotta go to the bathroom.
3: <laughs>
1: now what's the first rule when you get a new person? Put them to work. Get them involved, put them to work, put them to work. right? Could you please take care of the booth? I gotta go. Well, you do have to. Marshall said, you have to go to the bathroom right then. <laughs> didn't
0: say you were
3: going
1: to do anything in the bathroom. <laughs> so anyway, that's the Harris five-jar technique. It's a way to bring them over a little closer to the booth. A little different colored. We give you three different colors of dots when you get your uh, chart. We give you three different colors of dots. And we suggest that you divvy up the group somehow. One way is, you know, uh, do you lean Republican, Democrat, or neither? You lean away from those folks. And then you use three different color dots, or you could do um, uh, upperclassmen, lowerclassmen, uh, you know, and teachers, or something like that. But you use any sort of. Well, it depends. If you're on a college campus, you might do it differently. If you're in a high school, you know, are your parents Republicans, Democrats, or or mixed, or neither? You know, kind of. A, you just do something to end up with three colors of dots up there. Now, what happens to the to the uh, guy who's got a real active, uh, or gal who's got a real active, logical, uh, inquisitive mind, and they're walking by your booth and they see three colors dots on a Cartesian coordinates that are canted 45 degrees.
3: What do the colors mean? What do the colors mean? (laughs) You've
1: got your hook. I know the libertarian movement is richly endowed with
3: introverts.
1: (laughs) Do you think I would be creating tools that helped people to walk over and ask you questions? Yep. That's the reason for the three colors of dots. Uh, there was a question over here, Nita. Yeah? Well, I was
0: wondering, um, does it work? At all? It would only take two colors. It would only take two colors of dots. But have you found anything bad to happen if you try to divide it, in men and women?
2: Uh,
1: I don't know of anyone who's tried the men and women split. Um, you could do that, men, and women. Either.
3: <laughs> Men women, others. <laughs> 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 <This is California. laughs>
1: you know, might not need as many dots of the earth Depends where
3: you are.
1: By the way, I don't. This probably not appropriate to tell this story on on tape, but
3: uh, <laughs> <laughs> twist my arm.
2: Oh, oh, tell it. Us,
3: okay.
1: <laughs> Thought you'd never ask. The state of California has a law that if you are undergoing a, a medical procedure and you get arrested, that the state, i.e. you folks, have to pay for the rest of that medical procedure for it to be complete. Now if you need a sex change and you're broke, window. get one shot, right? Get your opening shot, and then get incarcerated, and there's a whole wing. In one of our state, one of our, one of the California state prisons, there's a whole wing of people undergoing sex changes at your expense. <laughs> right now.
3: <laughs> right
1: now. <laughs> Several dozen in there. So. <laughs> well, what's freedom all about if we're not free to make you pay for their changes, right?
3: Where's the never jar? When you
1: need Where's the never jar? <laughs> when you need one. <laughs> Okie dokel dokel. Any last questions? We're going to wrap this puppy up.
3: Arthur, would, would you please review the three steps you said, establish the purpose, establish
1: a measurable, measurable goal, and then you kind of didn't conclude in a very concise statement what the third step would be. Work like hell. Work, work, work. And count your process, your progress each week. And look at everything that you're doing. Does it address that goal? See, if your objective is to is to get the names and addresses of people that are interested in our ideas, then the card that you design to hand out when you're out speaking is different than the conventional political card. The conventional political card says you know, name and address, would you be willing to put up a yard sign, uh, you know, on the contributions and all that sort of stuff. And people aren't, don't really do that too much. And how many contributions have you ever gotten off of yours? I mean, I don't know, out of the 8,000 that I sent out, uh, you know, I maybe got one, maybe. I know I got one, $20 my <laughs> okay. guy. But it doesn't pay for itself, but what you'd redesign that card completely, you'd have it focus on You'd have it focus on being attractive for the person to. And if you all would like to uh, receive a, an invitation to a libertarian event uh, so that you could come and scope this out at some point, just put your name and your mailing address uh, on that card, maybe your phone number, whatever, but just go ahead and fill out those cards right now. I'll take one more question while we're filling out the cards. Notice how you, your, your attitude towards the service club or towards the high school or towards the changes. the when your focus is on that measurable goal, ah, I got 61 cards more. We're at 711 right now. How are we doing? Okay. Every time you're 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 working with a reporter, you say my purpose is to get the names and addresses that are people that are that are interested. Gee, you 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 may not have the authority to put an address in the paper where um, where uh, um, where people could respond. Oh yes, I do. <laughs> Oh, okay, great. A little Brer Rabbit action there. But your whole attitude on that newspaper interview is to get him to come one step closer, or her to get one step closer to being a libertarian, and then you want your address so that they can follow you up.
0: After they've taken your address, can you then ask for their address? The reporter's address? Yeah, it's only one name. but.
1: Oh sure! Oh for sure! Yes, yes. Good question. Would you then ask for the reporter's address, if they have given you some glimmer of interest? Then I would say, and this, this you can see sometimes they turn off the camera or the, something, and they keep asking questions. Right? Are their jobs done? The cameras are buttoned up. And I says, do you think this would really work? I've never been done before. You know, you ask really good questions. I'm going to get a group of people together that ask good questions and that like to really understand issues, turn them upside down Um, after the first of the year. I mean, this is October now. After the first of the year, and we're going to form a uh, uh, breakfast group, meet for four or five weeks, and just have breakfast and talk talk over some of the toughest issues in the land. Would you have any objection to receiving an invitation to that? It's a place where no means yes. It's another thing, we, we teach you these kinds of things. I mean, heck, you think of, for 12 years, what, what are years in IBM that uh, you know I sat there and tried to learn nothing? And so we teach a lot of that kind of sales stuff. Because the guy knows you're presenting him with something and he's got sales resistance, he wants to say no. Doesn't he? He's got sales resistance, doesn't he? Here, is there any, ob- do you have any objection to me, uh, to your, would you have any objection to being informed about when this event is? No.
3: <laughs>
1: I wouldn't, uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be all right. <laughs> yeah, no means yes. How about this? Would you like to be on the libertarian mailing list? Uh,
3: no.
1: That's our regular question that we ask. You know, when we're doing our fair booting kinds of things. There's the mailing list. Would you like to be on it? Nobody wants to be on their mailing list. So we teach. It's in the manual there. That your closing question is, would you like to be informed of libertarian events in your neighborhood? Now, do the kind of people that become libertarians like to be informed? I mean, you've just said something magic to them. Do people like to go to meetings or events? Events. Events. So, thank you for the question. Yes, very appropriate to get the name and address of any reporter who seems uh, interested in our ideas. Yes? Also, oh, really milk that later, I mean, if are interested at all... Just saying, Lisa, I can't stretch any further and... No, I'll, I'll talk it. yeah, but I would, It's more than talking up. It's hand her the microphone. Bruce, pull that thing over my political cord here. <laughs> well, you don't have to put up with the complaint letters that I get from people who say, I couldn't understand <laughs> the things on tape.
3: This may be obvious, sound obvious, but you can milk that for a lot more later. If you have friends in the media, people who you've actually made a, a real contact with later when you have any little thing comes up you can call them up and say this is what we're doing wanted you to know first and they appreciate that Yep, they really do. thank you
1: now before we do our final close we're going to do something that's becoming a tradition within the advocates we started it in the teleconferencing but it's becoming a tradition in other sorts of meetings too. where we asked people to share one of the highlights that they enjoyed something that rang their bell at, uh, in this presentation, so I want you to come forward and just uh, kind of line up over here. Okay, come on. Uh, who's going to be first? Need someone. Peter, you've been on high on um, on uh, teleconferences. Come on up here, and in five ten seconds, tell us one of the highlights for you of what you enjoyed about the last hour and a half. Okay, so come on up here. You're going to be on television, national television. I'll saw the tape somewhere on the other side. <laughs> come on, Amy, you're photogenic. Come on up here and tell us one of the uh, highlights for you. So just take the take the microphone and.
0: Well, this, this has really been such a good program, because I ran for office last November, and I wish I had done this last fall instead of now, because I'm going, oh, my God, I, this would have been a lot more helpful then. But I think the measurable goal is so important, because I kind of feel that maybe my campaign last, last fall wasn't as worth it as much as it could have been. So I'd like to thank Marshall for that. How's your name, Chuck? I'm Chuck Olson, Libertarian candidate for Congress in Palo Alto. And the most uh, meaningful moment of this presentation for me was when Marshall was describing how the uh, the people who have attended the seminar one write the definition, and then you ask them if they agree to it, sign it. And that actually brought tears to my eyes, because it's that is a real meaningful moment. and. Uh, I want to thank Marshall for that. Thank you.
3: I'm Amy Swanson with the Citizens for Freedom of Agriculture, and I'm involved with Tony Nathan's Coalition to End Drug Violence. I'm going to be having a meeting in my neighborhood among my neighbors and the guy from the grocery store and the guy from the newspaper and the teacher and the realtor and all the people that I've come in contact with in the last uh, few months. And having a measurable goal for a meeting like this sort of escaped me. But getting down the names and the addresses of the people I think is going to be really essential and um, keeping my mouth shut.
0: (laughs) Richard Martin, Orange County congressional candidate. and Marshall reminded me today that uh, winning is not necessarily just getting elected, that we can have measurable goals and successes. Uh, despite, uh, or regardless of, our our electoral victory. I'm Jim Lorenz, the chair of San Diego County. See in our audience we have Dick Ryder, our chair emeritus, our great object of uh, emulation, adoration. We're trying the ideas of uh, advocates for self-government. They're very effective. We had a tremendous booth at the new San Diego Convention Center. We had people three deep for two and a half days. I had to shut off the board and actually pull the, uh, the clipboards out of their hands to close. Mm-hmm. So it's very effective, and of course there's always more to learn. But this is more fun than you'll ever have. Kenita Watson, candidate for Secretary of State. I think the most important thing that was brought out to me in this is the importance of not arguing, because it really is a waste of time. I've stood with people, and I love to argue, but it just doesn't get change people's minds. And the comment about looking for the open nuts first is uh, was really telling.
3: <laughs> I'm Del Harbour, and... I'm a candidate out in the high desert for the 61st Assembly District, and uh, I certainly like uh,
1: Marshall's emphasis on it's all right to say no and be honest rather than waffle
2: around. And uh, uh, his material has helped me, has been a godsend to me,
1: and I've been able to go with some enthusiasm about sharing the
3: idea without uh, having to try to... Well, yeah, we're going to win. I mean, uh, we're out there teaching instead of uh, being political. Thank you.
2: I'm Gary Dusseljay, Nevada County contact, and I'm not running for anything this time, but I've sure been inspired in the next election I am going to run. I too was very impressed with the saying, no, I I didn't like the lie of, of saying that there was a possibility of winning and wiping out that one lie really almost brought tears to my eyes and I'm definitely going to run in the next election and I'm very impressed with Marshall and last night what he had to say and today I'm very, very impressed. And would you take over the microphone, I have to go pee.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My name is Dick Ryder. I'm with the uh, San Diego County Libertarian Party and uh, candidate for the 41st Congressional. Uh, I'm one of those guys who really enjoys giving a speech. We have a number of introverts running for office who are frightful of that particular evolution. I could talk for hours, Uh, but uh, (laughs) Marshall is reminding me of something that I probably need him to come along and remind me on every single speech I give, and that is ask for the order. Get the names, get the addresses. I give great speeches and walk out of there with no names, and that's not the way to do it. We've got to get the names and the addresses of those people who are leaning in our direction, draw them into our camp. That's absolutely paramount to our operation. Thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. In closing, I'd like to share with you something that was a highlight for me in the last couple of weeks. In fact, many of you have probably heard of the 100-Seminar campaign that we launched at the beginning of this year. We've done, just to give you an idea of the size of the Seminar 1, and the history of the program, each year we've doubled history to date. Last year, we had 60, or I mean, now we have a total of 61 people that have led 97 Seminar 1s. They've generated 317 New Libertarians. It works out to 3.25 New Libertarians per seminar. And that keeps inching its way upwards as we get them, people trained in how to get more and more people to attend the seminar. And the 80 to 85% closing rate has been constant since the beginning. So this year we thought, well, let's really have some fun. Let's start 100 seminars. And we've done 97 in the history of the program. Let's do 100 seminars the week of March the 26th. Now you're all wondering, well, did we make it? And the answer is, and of course, I don't want to lie on this, with a certain redefinition of the date March the 26th. (laughs) Stretching it to include the weeks of January the 21st, January the 28th, June the 3rd, June the 10th. But what we've got right now is 61 people in the USA signed up and lined up to lead their seminars. One in Canada and nine in Europe. So we're at about 70 people. Some of them have already started their <coughs> seminars. One farmer in, uh, in Iowa looked at the manual and said, heck, I can read this and start a seminar in two weeks. I don't need all your training, Marshall. And did. And he wants to get it done before planting. Okay, so you know, there's people that, that uh, aren't in synchronization and part of the main training body. So there's people that are a little ahead. There's people that say, hey, I'd love to start, but I want to be in the CPAs. I'll be in the April wave, not in the March wave, because they're a little bit busy. So what it looks like, out of those 70 people we now have, and probably in the, in the next training wave, starting in three weeks, we'll have about another 30 people, 20 to 30 people in that training wave. So we'll probably end up with a total of about 90 people. So more than doubling the history to date. And those 90 people will probably do somewhere between 110 and 120, 130 seminars this spring. So we will achieve in a uh, slightly stretched um, definition. But again, look at the beauty of having the, the numbers, of having the target to shoot for. It's like an archery, you know? I mean, if you have a bullseye, you, you, you can try. Don't always hit it. But if you don't have a target, how do you know? What were you aiming at? The ground? Ah, You know, it hit somewhere. Now the last little bit of excitement and we're out of here. Oh, and I got a, one in the a thing I want to mention. We're going to have a support group for candidates who want to focus on uh, names, that, that think this program makes sense, and they want to have their candidacy focus on the getting of names. We're going to have seven people in that support group. The charge is $300. They will meet every two weeks together with me and with other people that are experienced and they will meet and with each other via the teleconference. So they'll be dialing from San Diego and Atlanta and, and walla walla and wherever. But they all dial in at say 10 o'clock on Saturday morning or whatever it happens to be. And for 55 minutes, they'll be working with each other and with me and with others on what they should be doing. Because now it's February, what should we be doing? And it's July, then it's August. And you, you, we're getting closer and closer and closer. And it's a support group in the sense that, no, we don't have marching orders to to, uh, give from Fresno. We've got ideas, and we've got connections, and we can say, oh, yeah, there's a guy in in, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania that has an answer to that question, and we can put you in touch with him. But for $300, you get to be part of the pilot program to experiment with that. And if it works the way we think it's gonna work, the campaigns in 1992 and for the rest of the life of the libertarian movement are gonna be vastly different because we're gonna write a new book. We're gonna write the book on how campaigns should be. And if you want to be a part of that, then you need to talk to me privately. Whether you, and we did a prototype of the pilot program last year, Steve Dosbach and I, and it was very exciting. This is the thing that Briglin said, we think you've cracked the code on how to train and inspire our candidates so that they can be more effective. And the last little thing. Two weeks, a week and a half ago, a non-Libertarian called me from, from uh, Corvallis, Oregon, a chap by the name of Andy Nelson, And he said, is there a uh, seminar one here in, uh, in uh, Corvallis? And it turned out a year before he'd gone uh, uh, to the Saturday market up in Portland. Steve Buckstein was running one of these Operation Politically Homelesses. The guy didn't have uh, time, but he was just curious, didn't know what it was, and grabbed a, uh, a, uh, a world's smallest political quiz sent in eight dollars to the advocates, got the information kit, uh, found out about the Libertarian Party, you know, got some information from them. Now he wants to attend a seminar one. He's ready to learn more about Libertarianism. And I said, I'm sorry, we don't have one in in Corvallis. Do you know what the best way to learn a subject is? (laughs) Teach it. Ladies and gentlemen, last Tuesday morning, for the first time in history, a non-Libertarian paid to get to training, to take the training, to learn how to be a seminar one leader. He's recruiting his people to attend, his fellow non-libertarians, and together the six of them will be meeting in Corvallis, evaluating the libertarian political philosophy, and then at the end he will do the close, just like the libertarians were. okay, now let's all of us write our definitions of libertarianism, and then he's going to say, and now all of us who agree with those ideas, let's sign our names. Is it going to work? That's right. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. We're out of here. And it fits on a 90-minute tape. Yes, for $5, you keep that pink sheet. For $10, you keep the uh, uh, other one. So the answer is yes. You pay, you get.
3: Yeah, I uh, that. Really I get
0: uh, a lot of people talking about that. i I think i going to do think i talk
3: to you I do think i talk to you later. I I'm going to talk I am you